Gnosticism and the Occult. All right, I'm Jack Donovan, and you are listening to or watching Pater, PH2T3R, the Journal of Solar Culture. And I'm here with uh, C.B. Robertson today, and we're going to talk about Gnosticism and the Occult. Um, because people who are into our thing is a new thing. Uh, solar idealism is a new thing. And it's for people, obviously, who aren't necessarily going to be conformists. Uh, people who are conformists, well, we already know what they're going to be doing uh, because there was a, those are the mainstream things and they just go and do those things. And th that's pretty predictable. But people who have been attracted to other things, whether it's different kinds of paganism or, or you know, they occult at different point, points in their lives, find themselves coming into liking some of what we're saying about solar idealism and, and because there's a bigger picture there. And you can see there's a lot of mythologies and pulling things, different ideas together. But because of their backgrounds, they have a lot of different attachments to different ideas that maybe they see in a way that aren't necessarily consistent with what that thing is. And they don't see a conflict with solar idealism in the way that I think Chris and I do. Um, and even though we don't obviously think all the same things, but I think that we both uh, see like, oh, this is, this is not it. <laughs> it looks like it might be, but it's not sometimes. And so I just think it's a really interesting topic. I, Chris made a, made a post on Instagram about it, kind of one of those uh, graphic carousel posts about Gnosticism. And we talked about it a little bit in uh, The Order of Fire as well. So we thought we'd bring it, this discussion here. And I, I just wanted to say before I get started is that uh, there was a point while I was writing Fire in the Dark where I actually thought, about calling myself a Gnostic pagan. And the reason why is it was purely etymological and, and in reading different descriptions of Gnosticism, which as we'll talk about, there are a lot of different descriptions of Gnosticism and they aren't necessarily consistent. Um, I came to see it as a way of knowing through experience. Uh, in terms of like, okay, well, I had this experience. You may not have had this experience. Da, da, da. So I can, I can say this for me. Like I, I can say, here's what my experiences are. Uh, you know, things that I felt connected to or not, and that's that's my experience. And you know, like, but that's not necessarily yours. And so you know, so I wasn't really imposing it on anyone, but like, was like, okay, well, here's where I'm at. And so I, I thought about, I toyed with that idea. Obviously, I didn't go with that idea, but it was just something I played with because Gnosticism sounds, it has all of the language that attracts us to these kind of esoteric things. And actually, um, uh, well, I don't know. Should you, do you happen to have your post handy? Your text uh, from your post? I, I do. Um, I can, Why don't we run through that? Up. Is that possible? Like, yeah. And, yeah. Then, and then before I, take that tangent we should say we're give them some background <laughs> yeah for sure I'll, I'll pull it up and read it but but while i'm pulling it up um i i see exactly where you're going with the the gnostic in the sense of experience mm -hmm. um the famous the the oracle at delphi um you know has the words know thyself right over the top but the the word for no is not episteme mm -hmm. it's gnosis the, the word for no is gnosis. It implies, um, you know, uh, personal experience in that way. Mm -hmm. And 
um, another intellectual I follow uh, was complaining recently about how, you know, Aristotle uses this word dialectic to refer to argument. And he's like, and the freaking Marxists and the Hegelians stole this word for no reason and made it mean something else. And so now whenever he talks about dialectic, he has to say Aristotelian dialectic as opposed to the Marxist or the Hegelian dialectic to differentiate because Hegelian dialectic has nothing whatsoever to do with Aristotelian <laughs> dialectic. And it does feel like something similar happened with Gnosis, but we'll, we'll get into that. Um, so I, I've got my post up here and do you want me to just read it? Maybe. I mean, unless you want to, unless you have a different idea, but I think that might be a good way to read people through it. Yeah. We could perhaps share the images in the, in the after production of this, but it's yeah, basically yeah. an introduction to what is Gnosticism. And this is a very broad overview. And I'm talking, um, there's a professor named Ryan Reeves who teaches theology at Gordon Conwell University. And, and his description of Gnosticism in his lectures on the history of the early church was that Gnosticism can't really boil, be boiled down to one thing. It's more of a tendency. Um, I mean, you and I both listened to James Lindsay and he, he tries to break it down into like, it describes kind of four different things or maybe three or four different things incidentally. Uh, so it, the word can be hard to parse out, but the colloquial sense of the term Gnostic is a tendency. I think Ryan Reeves is correct. And that's what I'm trying to get at. So what I say is, Gnostic, what is Gnosticism? Gnosticism is a mysterious family of religions and semi-religious movements, which are united in a belief in an elevation of Gnosis, which in their case is a hidden truth that is only acquired through initiation. It's a broad term which has been used to describe both specific historical movements as well as modern mystical traditions, but what defines and unites all Gnostic movements is the belief that the world as we experience it is an illusion. So Plato's cave, perhaps the earliest example of Gnostic thinking, not a Gnostic movement, Gnostic thinking, comes from Plato. In the Republic, Plato asks Glaucon and Ademantus to imagine men living in a false reality that they do not realize is only an illusion. As an allegory to education, he describes the scenario where men are chained from birth in a cave where all they can see are the shadows of puppets cast from a fire behind them. The one who escapes and sees daylight is unable to convey the realness of the reality he experiences, gnosis, yeah, firsthand, to his friends. So Christian Gnosticism is where Gnosticism acquired its name and its broader reputation in the first to third centuries, more or less, under the guise of Christianity. Among the more popular and known Gnostics were Marcion and Valentinus. I'm probably mispronouncing those. They taught interpretations of Christianity which would feel to many modern readers like almost Jungian or Campbellian ideas. Um, but their underlying message was that the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament. And that Yahweh was actually the demiurge, the, the artisan, who created the physical world as a kind of flesh prison for our souls, uh, which exist as pure spirit. In other words, the God of the Old Testament was not God, but was in fact a kind of evil demon, or at the very least a misshapen demon. Jesus, they say, taught us how to live in a manner that would reconnect with the all, which is the true God, because we all have a spark of divinity within us. 
and escape the prison of the demiurge and with it escape the corruption of physical existence. So the essence of Gnosticism uh, was summarized and a lot of people take this quote and I think for good reason because it does get to the heart of it. Theodotus the Gnostic described Gnosis in the following way. Gnosis is, quote, the knowledge of who we were and what we became, of where we were and where until we have been flung of where to we are hastening and where from we are redeemed of what birth is and what rebirth, end quote. Gnosticism is mystical in nature. So that, that quote sort of conforms there. True understanding of the meaning of cryptic lines comes only to the initiated. This sets the initiated in their knowledge above the knowledge of material existence, which is scientific knowledge. Spiritual understanding is of a higher grade and the desire to reunite with the pure spirit, supported by mythopoetic allusions to the Garden of Eden, the serpent, wisdom, knowledge, and suffering, is itself the first step in an in Gnostic initiation. And then I, I threw in this quote from the Gospel of Thomas, where Jesus says, Wretched is the body that is dependent upon a body, and wretched is the soul that is dependent upon these two. So modern Gnosticism... Uh, in this spirit of Gnosticism carries on to this day, albeit not usually in Christian form. Two prominent examples of Gnosticism today include uh, Marxism and transhumanism. And I, I will say as an aside, I think I botched this slide. Uh, this is like, this requires like four hours of James Lindsay lectures to understand. I should have gone with a more um, obvious example of modern Gnosticism, which is simulation theory. But I digress. Uh, I already published this, and I'm not going to go back and redo it. <laughs> this is correct. I, a lot of people say, oh, it feels like a stretch. And the, Vogelin and, and Lindsay, I think, make it fairly clear. Anyways, both treat the historical and material conditions of man as a prison that has corrupted man from his true nature. Whether this true nature is an original state of things or our potentiality is less relevant than it at first appears. In both cases, overt opposition to religion serves as a kind of cover for deeply religious thinking, which can be seen in texts like Marx's critique of Hegel's philosophy of right or Nick Bostrom's fable of the dragon tyrant. Both depict the truth as something hidden and protected by those in power, that economic forces rule or that death is bad, respectively. The Gnostic aspires to become God through knowledge. So the criticisms of Gnosticism go all the way back to the second century from saint irenaeus in the second century to scholars like eric Vogelin and james lindsay critics have gone after gnosticism in all of its forms not just the christian one the essence of the critique of gnosticism is the same today as it was two thousand years ago which is that it cannot survive the light of exposure it must remain clouded in mystery and secrecy spreading its notions only at the speed at which people can be initiated which is to say psychologically prepared for belief. In other words, brainwashed. The advocates of Gnosticism rarely, if ever, directly state their beliefs at first, but only allude to a deeper truth or a higher truth, which one must choose to accept in advance, which is called seeking, before understanding is even possible. It was always a pyramid scheme of psychology and wordplay rather than truth. Uh, truth is another conversation. <laughs> Uh, the psychology of Gnosticism. There is a pattern in the groupings of beliefs held by Gnostics, but which are not always religious, indeed, which don't necessarily go together at all. 
uh, in speaking about Gnosticism and conspiracy theories, and this was, I remember your criticism was like, you're speaking negatively conspiracy theories in 2023. <laughs> uh, but, but still, uh, Bishop Robert Barron, I apologize for quoting so many Christians here. It's a, you know, we're talking about Gnosticism, so Christians have a lot to say. Um, pointed out that the appeal of Gnosticism, and he was speaking directly about Marx and Hegel, interestingly enough, um, was, quote, there's a psychological appeal from the time you're a little kid. Who doesn't like that when there's a, a little in-group that knows? He, he said, Gnosticism is a kind of philosophy for punks or black metal enthusiasts, rejecting popular beliefs and adopting the antithesis. Many Gnostics hold to beliefs in a flat earth or an elaborate government conspiracies rather than the normal government conspiracies. Um, in historical giants like Nephilim and all variety of conspiracies of cover-ups, like, of illusion. Again. The ultimate conspiracy, of course, the, the bottom of that, you know, tower of turtles is the conspiracy of reality itself. So there's a book I've been working through called um, Ritual and the Religion and Religion and the Making of Humanity by Roy Rappaport, who's a, a very interesting scholar. But in his, in his book, he actually defines Gnosticism as a category of lie. He has a whole taxonomy of lies. And he, he predicts it's one that we'll actually see more in the future. And he, just, he describes it in the following way. Quote, In Gnostic understanding, this world is not the handiwork of a beneficent god, but of a quasi-evil being or beings, as we went over before the Demiurge. As such, it is, in its entirety, a comprehensive illusion. We can declare such a comprehensive falsification of the world's nature, the Gnostic lie. The Gnostic lie becomes ever more dominant and dangerous as social and political, but especially economic, processes become ever more global and ever more highly powered by elaborate, expansive, and concentrated technology. End quote. So he's sort of foreshadowing the uh, uh simulation theory perhaps so the gnostic temptation is my last slide it says in the end we can understand gnosticism as a kind of allure not unlike the the apple of forbidden wisdom <laughs> that they say you should actually bite the temptation of hidden knowledge this is not to say that knowledge in the world cannot be hidden in a sense nor that initiation has no place or even that writing cannot be esoteric uh, but when these things are combined to insinuate that essentially the whole world is an illusion, it is a safe bet that you are being flattered, tacitly praised as intelligent and spiritual, to accept a worldview that validates one's own sense of superiority even over the world. This may be tempting to people who feel slighted by the world, but it rarely benefits those who accept this poisonous idea in whatever form it takes, and it isn't true. And so that started it all <laughs> okay. so i have a, a question that I, I forgot that i was thinking when we were talking about this before and it just came to me as you're reading through it um aren't all religions gnostic <laughs> well no no okay. um <laughs> I, I i just had a conversation about this yesterday actually with a friend who said couldn't you read not just all religions but essentially all belief systems uh, in that way, it's like, oh, there's, there's this, there's this truth that you, if you, if you just understand that, um, 
that Jesus is saved, died for your sins or something that like that, that's, that's like the secret truth that there's a few reasons. Um, most religions, the vast majority are not, I think, I think the one major religion that could qualify perhaps as Gnostic is Buddhism. Okay. Buddhism in many ways comes fairly close, but in the spirit of it, it does like the spirit that we don't like it. I totally agree. Oh, well, the right. Only, what it's become? There, there's like some old forms of, of Buddhism that we we well, can. No, bring no, I mean, I think Clinton Clinton into, into, <laughs> it, 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 this Buddhism proper is 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 exactly what we're talking about. Yeah. In in the spirit, the part of the spirit that we don't like, but in right. the terms of, um, we have a different version of reality that you don't know about. Here's our new reality. You know, like that's yeah. like, and, and obviously, anyone who starts a new religion is preaching a new version of reality that no one else knows about unless yeah. it's tribal i mean tribal religions evolve organically and so that's a different thing but uh any any i guess religion well uh going back to nietzsche i guess that jumps us into zarathustra right. uh the first prophet and it, it, any religion that spreads by um going out and converting people from one religion to another one maybe would be closer to gnostic well so the the sense of gnosticism the 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 gnostic uh tendency that yeah. professor ryan reeves describes it says has three characteristics and um it's the first the idea that the world is an illusion it's not just oh the world you're experiencing like that, that that's that's all well and good but like there's this other thing that that takes things to the next level that we think you would really like like that's not gnostic what, what Gnosticism is, is like, no, no, no. The world that you're living in is actually uh, shadows on the wall of a cave and you don't know that you're chained in a cave. Like that that's very different than saying like, hey, like we live in a tough world. Uh, we have some techniques that we think will like, if you meditate and, and uh, pray to our divinity, you're going to have a better time of it. Like the, the, those are very different kinds of claims. And so the claim that the world is an illusion is like a really big part. Uh, the hatred of the flesh is the second part. And um, I have been accused um, in my writings of Christianity about Christianity of, of making Christianity out to be more Gnostic than it really is. But there are lots of bits in Christianity that uh, take some acrobatic interpretation to wriggle out of hating the flesh. Mm -hmm. um buddhism can have that tendency too i believe certain sects of hinduism can do that as well and there, there are all kind of ascetic traditions around the world from a wide yeah. range of different ascetic traditions um, by definition hate the flesh basically yeah, yeah. yeah um so all all kinds of ascetic traditions sort of have that but but there are worldviews that see the flesh as evil and where gnosticism gets really weird is they'll they'll try to do this weird psychology of accelerationism sometimes where part of the initiation is you go total degenerate for some number of years to try to numb yourself to the pleasure the, the way that like i think herman hess sort of wrote about this with siddhartha and, and the buddha like enjoying good food and women and all this stuff and then after after some period of that he comes out as like Ah, that's not really doing it for me anymore. And so, like, that's a that was a part uh, for some people. 
Um, but the, but the the desire to push people through that degeneracy actually comes from a an opposition to sex, strangely enough, and a hatred of the flesh and a desire to eat minimalist food and right. a rejection even of earthly beauty as some kind of distraction. So so there's the world is an illusion, hatred of the flesh, and the third thing Ryan Reeves lists is salvation through knowledge. And, and, and it's not just knowledge in the general scientific, we might say Socratic sense of like a general faith that if we just pursue knowledge, we're going to wind up in a better place. It's no specifically knowledge of, as Theodotus uh, said, uh, from whence you have come, which is the one, the all, whence you are going and, and all that other cryptic stuff. It's the fact, it's the... It's the knowing, the understanding through revelation that the end is really the beginning. And if you truly understand these things, as the Gospel of Thomas says, you won't chase death. It's a, it's a, it's, it's specific knowledge that is part of their own little thing. Or maybe it's the knowledge that you're in a simulation. Um, <laughs> well, right. Although the nature of salvation there is a little bit more mysterious to me. Well, you're... I think that's where you're talking about separating out uh, the techniques of Gnosticism from uh, Gnosticism proper as or right. not the historical or, movement from the tendency. Right. Yeah. The tendency, the tendency then, as we were, we were discussing uh, earlier this week, the tendency then starts to sound like a shady sales pitch. <laughs> uh, you know, it starts oh, to sound right. And, and that, and, that, and that it really, and that's the attraction of the occult. And that's one of the things I wanted to get into because then, Really, if you if you look at everything through a Gnostic, you know, if you well, let's not say look at everything through a Gnostic lens because that's like right. that that you know that's the whole one solution is all solutions thing, but um, all these words that have an appeal, I think to to uh, perhaps guys like you, perhaps guys like me, uh, a lot of our members in the Order of Fire, um, and even like to the childish part of us that wants to be a wizard or you know or to who can you know read dr strange or like you know like the things who were like i want to there are there are secrets of the world that if i could only learn the magic words i could make things happen and do all these things these secret things that they're, they're that you can only find out if you go to the mountaintop and talk to the guy yeah. and uh and one of the words that struck me is I had to look it up immediately and I'm like, this is literally fucking Gnosticism is esoteric. And as soon as you look at the word esoteric, what it means, it's Gnostic. <laughs> you know, like, like, oh, from the ancient degrees belonging to an inner circle. Uh, well, know, so, so referring originally to the secret te teachings of Greek yeah. philosophy. Well, and, and there is a distinction between occult and Gnostic. Because yeah. occult is hidden teachings, but you can you can believe there are hidden teachings. There are hidden means. I am I subscribe to Leo Strauss's view of Plato, which I subscribed to before I ever like fully grasped who Leo Strauss was. I I thought Leo Strauss was for some reason connected to neoconservatism because of some propaganda that some people put out uh, years ago. He's not really, but um, like I came to the conclusion that 
Plato was writing the Republic in this very tricky allegorical manner. And it was Greg Nagy writing about the mode of the Inos as it presents itself in the Iliad and the Odyssey. That I was like, oh, that's what's going on. It's this, it's this cryptic mode of communication that is designed to prime young people. Because if you, if you try to tell a young, passionate young man what to do directly, he's going to want to do the opposite, which sort of brings us to Gnosticism. But um, like, so, you know, he writes about this mode of, of speech called an Inos, where you give this intentionally cryptic mode of speech that is essentially designed to prime young men to think about something and will in advance of the decision. And then once the moment of decision comes, they'll know to make the right choice, but it'll be their decision, not just doing what they're told. Um, and it's a, it's an attempt to guide in, in the case of Homer, young men down a path of moderation away from the temptations, the tragic temptation of heroism and death towards something that's heroic, but you don't necessarily have to die and you don't have to become, to have funeral games done in your honor for hundreds of years because you gave your life in a sad way. Right. Um, and, but this got picked up and kind of run with, uh, and people were, um, you know, we now have esoteric readings of, of all kinds of things. And the, the justification for esoteric reasons can be as basic. This is a very common view of, um, oh, he just didn't want to be direct because he didn't want to be forced to drink hemlock. Uh, you could say, um, is George Orwell's Animal Farm a direct book? Well, I'm, I'm not sure he was actually interested in 4-H and agriculture in writing Animal Farm. I think that book had a different subject. <laughs> now, that's a pretty a ham-fisted, so to speak, um, you know, esoteric reading. It is full of lots of pig that was not pig. And, um, but you can, you know, imagine the levels of complexity and subtlety that can be induced. And yeah, it's easy to see why people could kind of go off the rails imagining, um, you know, intense, incredible layers of, of symbolism hidden in, in this Dan Brown novel about this other book, about this other thing, and, um, you know, kind of lose your way completely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. What were we talking about before? <laughs> There's so many ways to go. I had, I, I actually had a, a really, really smart thing to say somewhere in the middle of that, but I lost. Oh, it. sorry. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah. no. Um, I, we were talking about the distinction between the occult and the gnostic. Right, right, and that's that's like I said, that's something I wanted to dig into a little bit, just because, like, like I said, the language, the esoteric, the like, this, the occult, the occult means hidden. A lot of people mm -hmm. don't know that. They think it means Satanism or whatever, but it just means hidden. So it's, again, it's yeah. hidden knowledge. It's secret knowledge. And so much of that world is sells that. And whether it's, there is a lot of it that is pulled from Gnosticism. And again, the more I read this kind of stuff, the more I just had a gut dislike. When I read the Bread book, I had a gut dislike of Jung almost immediately. And the more I read of Young, the more I like see all the Gnostic influence, and, and I'm just kind of like, yeah. ah. uh, it kind of bugs me. But the same is true. But also, you know, there's obviously things about that that have captivated a lot of people. 
yeah. seemed very magical in the way that one of our members, I think, brought up William Blake, and uh, who was, I think, known as a little bit of a Gnostic. Yes. And, uh, but Young also, I mean, Young has this beautiful red book that looks like a book of magic, really. It's like some a wizard made it. And then, uh, and, and has all kinds of like things about the mind and, and whatever. It's basically a wizard book. And uh, I have a copy. I didn't bring it out. I, I should just sell it on whatever. Uh, <laughs> well, it's, it's probably worth 80 bucks. But, uh, but yeah, you, you have this, this local world, this hidden knowledge um, feature of it. And if it's pulling from Gnosticism, this idea that the, the directly that the demiurge idea that, uh, you know, the whole world is an illusion. Anything that pulls from that, I want to be like, not solar. Yeah. <laughs> like well, a hard, not solar on that. Because okay, if the whole world's an illusion, then just fucking kill yourself. Um, you know, like, uh, just do it, you know, like, uh, fuck you, you know, like, uh, you know, like our whole thing is like embracing that you're actually an animal and that you're, you, there is a human nature and that we are like men of the earth. Obviously we have higher aspirations, but you don't get to actually, we're not trying to as, like literally ascend to godhood in a literal yeah. way. Um, you know, so we're not Mormon. Well, it's, it's but, very funny uh, to listen to the, the, the simulation theory advocates say, yeah. Well, like someone asked them, well, like, well, what changes about life if the world is an illusion? And they're like, well, I mean, nothing changes. Nothing changes. And they're very insistent that nothing is different, except except the, the psychological things that they want to make. Like, you don't have to take things quite as seriously. And like, they're trying to therapize and reduce anxiety. It's like, if nothing changes, why are you so insistent on this thing? Why are you pushing for this so hard? Why is this so captivating and fascinating to you? And this thing that you really can't prove. Right, in like, any like, direction. Who's running the simula simulation? It's like who's God? Yeah. It's, a, it's the same. It's the same. Uh, it's, there's so many. In, there's so many people trying to reinvent God, uh, right. in, in different ways. When you get in the technology sector, it's all these different ways where it's oh, yeah. either aliens or you know, it's so, someone's running a simulation or whatever. We're all part of a computer game. Who knows? But uh, it doesn't. It's all the same thing, and it doesn't really answer the question of who is God. Right. Uh, <laughs> it all yeah. takes it, it takes it back to the same place. Yeah. And the, the simulation one is funny because I, I was criticizing simulation theory um, several months ago. Um, and I had a number of arguments and uh, uh, pertaining to that. The, if we want to go back to the, the origin of this, that the modern form of the simulation, I mean, there's the Baudrillard position, which is kind of interesting, yeah, hyper reality and so forth. But yeah. it comes, the, the modern version comes from Nick Bostrom. And he has this mathematical model of, that based, is based on the presumed inevitability of real-life ancestor simulations, lifelike ancestor simulations that are indistinguishable from reality. And presuming that as a possibility, which it will be at some point in the future, um, it's only a matter of time before those arise, uh, one of three things must be true. And, and, and the other key factor is there's an unlimited number of these possible ancestor simulations so the odds are um th there are three possibilities he believes one we wipe ourselves out as, as a species before we reach that point um two we lose interest in ancestor simulations or three we are mathematically almost certainly overwhelmingly already living in an ancestor simulation because time is cut out because we an ancestor simulation could be set in 2023 or in the 1950s or whenever mm -hmm. 
Um, the thing that was interesting to me was uh, why do we not talk about option two as much that we lose interest in ancestor simulations, given how much, uh, how detrimental we know this to be. And my view um, is that uh, there is a, a condition that some people have called derealization or depersonalization syndrome. And it's the sensation that either depersonalization is your body doesn't feel like you, you feel like a robot almost. Mm -hmm. And derealization is the feeling that the world isn't real, that reality isn't real. It's, it's like you're living in a dream. And it's a sensation many people have during waking hours. From what I've read, there appears to be maybe a connection between spending too much time on the internet and having these conditions. Shock. Because yeah, I know, right? Because because what happens is when you're spending all your time online, mm -hmm. but you're still your body is in the physical world and your attention is divided between your phone, the internet, and the real world, then your experience of the real world loses its perception of causation. You walk around the world and things just seem to happen. You get in your car and you're at work without feeling like you ever drove there. Now that's, you know, a common one I'm bringing up because a lot of people have experienced this because you do it so many times that you don't need to pay attention and you get a sense of what that experience is like. But if your attention is distracted mm -hmm. all the time, not just your commute, but all of life can begin to take on that sense. Also drugs can do this a little bit too. There might be a little bit of crossover between the psychonaut culture and the Gnostic culture. Very not nice. very mysterious for a mystery religion. Yeah. Um, so like, I, th I think belief in and fascination with the simulation theory might be symptomatic of too much time on the internet uh, in that way. Um, or in any kind of fantasy world. Right. Uh, you know, like, I mean, you could have done it with uh, playing Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. Uh, you know, like before the internet, you know, like uh, any, anyone who is, well, all forms of escapism in which you're like hiding in another world. I mean, that used to be a thing for, you know, that was a story before we had the internet, you know, like uh, the boy who spent too many times with stories and books and like, they, they couldn't get, like yeah. get out of them, you know, like, and, and like said too much time with his head in the clouds. There's a uh, famous quote where J.R. Tolkien is accused of, of writing escapist novels. And he says, of course it's escapist. The world yeah. is like a, a, a rough place. Now, of course the world he created is also rough and there's something there's like a moral there, I think. There's like, oh, the world we want to live in is also dangerous and terrifying and requires courage and uh, well, is, is based on intensely well-researched history of our world as well. So it's like <laughs> part of the compellingness is that it has tie-ins with Beowulf and England. You know? Yeah, well, we uh, our creature, and this was actually mentioned, I think, in the Matrix in a roundabout kind of way uh in terms of their criticism of humanity oh yes of course you know the people who wrote that the whole thing. Yeah. but uh but yeah yeah agent smith speech but we cannot imagine a world without conflict and i've yeah. made this point many times we can't imagine a world without conflict because it's a story in which nothing happens uh, like they, it, it, without conflict, nothing happens. And so like, even when you have the Star Trek enterprise, they have to go to, they've had all this, the, the problems of humanity figured out, but they still have to go out in the space and fight people yeah. uh, and, and have it conflict because otherwise we lose all will to live. Like, we we can't, can call it uh, an end of history, perhaps.
Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm -hmm. And you can't have that because we can't tolerate that as a species because we need conflict. That's like uh, someone just got that tattooed on the though that that life is conflict, peace is death, like symbol that I made a long time ago. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I mean, it, because it's true, like we can't. There is. We need a story arc. We 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 know exactly what a story arc looks like. They have it mapped out perfectly in Hollywood. Uh, and they obviously many people have done it before that they just stole it from people who did it before that. Uh, we need a story arc. Yeah. And, and, uh, and, and, and I, I like that about us <laughs> as a species. I mean, I like and, that we need to have and, things happen. And, and specifically at a grand level, when we're, we're talking about cosmology and like creation stories and, and eschatology, what, what happens at the end? Our grand stories shouldn't be concluding in and then there was peace happily ever after yeah. like that's not that's not a good story that's that, why heaven that, never sounds fun yeah well, <laughs> and, yeah and like that's the i think to me that is the attraction uh I, i'm not a big aficionado of the nordic stuff i mean i i did my my time studying it but like yeah. it was, was kind of interesting but like there is something inherently attractive of the idea of a cycle where you know everything concludes in this fiery bloodbath or whatever but that but it starts over again and there's no there's no conclusion as there is with uh christianity and in uh dare i say orthodox gnosticism um <laughs> where where we're reunited with the all or um in you know find samsara or nirvana or whatever these 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 planes of eternal peace the the whatever language that you want to use with it yeah which i which i i mean that takes us back to the dragon right uh, i mean that's it, it, uniting with the nothingness basically uniting yeah. with with the flat line well uh, and it's you know, there, there is no distinction between yeah. all and nothing like i think that was one of the, the great points that was sort of reiterated in in your essay on the dragon negation which is that like death is the disintegration of identity you, mm -hmm. the, the matter that composes you doesn't go anywhere right. it's just reunited with everything <laughs> oh yeah that, oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i mean yeah. But, but you you are gone like uh, yeah all differentiated yeah you are not and, anything you're just atoms and, and at a certain level like the dragon negation is correct from a sufficiently objective perspective uh nothing lasts yeah. everything everything is one insofar as it is composed of matter or or connected in some in some the physics kind of way uh but that <laughs> but that framework that way of thinking that objective framework is so antithetical to the interests and spirit of a living organism and its desire to maintain its cell wall, to maintain its identity distinct from what is outside of it, mm -hmm. um, is very uh, like it. It is an important thing, I think, for people to to dwell upon who've maybe tripped on mushrooms one too many times, um, yeah. or or you know read the the you know gospel of Thomas or you know too many times. Uh, yeah, it, the, yeah, that reconnection. We're all the same. It's just so dangerous, uh, in the sense of like, uh, it's so easily used. Like in the way that these Gnostic theories, like the the way of Jimsy, James Lindsay talks about, uh, 
you know, different aspects of, you know, Marxism and the way it's become woke theory and all that kind of stuff and the way it, it, it kind of populates throughout the culture. But I mean, the people who are, think that they're going to, the joke of that is, is that the people who think that they're going to, you know, create this new thing or, you know, capture the form of the uh, means of production or whatever um, are just pawns. Uh, and they, 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 they aren't going to do anything. I mean, they're they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna play their role in making that happen, and then as what always happens is the oligarchs take over, and so this is really a, just a death philosophy for players. Yeah. Well, it's a it's it is a bit of a as I think a lot of them think that they're they think that they're in the know. They're like, yeah. oh yeah, we're gonna help this, but but we're gonna be we're already one step ahead, and it's still a pyramid scheme. It's still a yeah. game of a power game of musical chairs that you're you're playing. And everyone in that little rung, except the like that one poor true believer who doesn't know what he's getting into, but like, I'll bet most of them under do understand, um, like the the serious activists. There's there's the the sort of, I hate to use the term, um, but the the NPC minded go along to get along types who are like, oh yeah, we, we people we support. <laughs> that, but that's both, the the really good the ones that know all the theory and have read all the Foucault and read all the those those <laughs> yeah. those are few and far between. I mean, they they absolutely True. exist. I went to school with them, but like it, it is uh, and, and most people who've gone to college, they've gone, they know some of those guys, right, or some right. of those girls. Um, but you know, most of the people who go to the whatever communist thing have not done the reading in just in the way that like most Americans can't like run through the constitution or any of the other stuff. Right. They, they're just like, they know the, the, they get the vibe and they're sold on the pyramid scheme side. Like, Oh, we have a secret tooth. Uh, you know, like here we're, we're going to make something great happen. You, we, you know, the James Lindsay uh, thing with that, that diversity um, thing that you go through the diversity inclusion thing right. uh, that, uh, pledge and different levels of, of, I forget was it different levels of tolerance. No, it's, it's a uh, tolerance. Wasn't the part. It was a uh, include. No, it wasn't inclusion. I would say there's a word that they, yeah, but these specific words. Yeah. 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 But, and, and, you know, it was yeah, to get to the point where, Oh, it was dignity. That yes. literally oh, everyone yes, has yes, dignity. Yes. Everyone has dignity. And, and, and they have like no 14 what they do, layers no or something. And yeah. then like when you hit like level seven, it's like, oh, this sounds yeah. really good. This sounds like what we have in America. But then there are levels past that. Yeah, five, and and, like, five six, and seven sound like America. And then the ones past that are like, and it's no like, one can be judged. It's actually undoing and it's moving towards that Gnostic unity with the one yeah. in a way. Um, yeah. And they're they're using the language of dignity as they'll use the language any language they can get a hold of, um, and uh, we should we should mention um, because for some people as was pointed out in my post uh, comparing Marx and transhumanists to Gnostics can feel like a pledge especially for people who like to nerd out on like the Nag Hammadi texts and stuff. Um, I can't encourage people strongly enough who have an interest in this to check out Eric Vogelin and James Lindsay. Um, there are claims that uh, Karl Marx straight up plagiarized the Corpus Hermeticum um, in his economic and philosophical manuscripts in 1841. Um, like it's very like if if Gnosticism can be a historical movement and also a just kind of psychological inclination, but also a technique 
like a marketing technique, so much of that technique is here in like the, the, the Marxist stuff and, and, and really, really in Hegel's stuff. Uh, who I think we've talked about a little bit in the past. Yeah, yeah we have. Uh, I mean, and definitely uh, when we post this online, uh, let us let me get a list of good links for you. Obviously, we have a couple from the post, but of like where people can follow up and listen to this. Because honestly, uh, as you know, I was resistant to the Lindsay thing and the Gnostic thing uh, when it was first mentioned because my my background with Gnosticism, not that I, not that I was ever agnostic, but my basic perceptions of it where I'm like, this is just weird occultists and all kinds of stuff like that. We're I'm like, that's not the way. Why, why are you applying this to all these things? And, uh, and, you know, I, but honestly, after listening to, to a few of his lectures, um, I feel like he's just saying a lot of the stuff that I was saying in um, like becoming a barbarian, barbarian and, and a lot of my work, but like, obviously with a, a whole different layer of research, I'm, I'm, I was feeling my way through it. And he yeah. he's like here's here's what they're doing like piece by piece uh, yeah. from the philosophy that they're coming from. So I feel like they're very aligned in what we're saying. Uh, but he he definitely like has has the whole system uh, down. Uh, so right. I, I can't recommend that stuff enough. Just to, so people get a little bit of a frame of what this this it, it does open up a lot of things. I mean it is it is you know like when I read it sometimes I'm like I feel like I really want to it's not my area of interest and I don't want to sit and read these texts, but uh, you know, I feel like I want to make sure that he's not messing with something, you know, yeah, like, well, I, you I know spent, like, because I want to do that with everything. I don't want to be like, Oh, right. well, James Lindsay said, so therefore I believe yeah. uh, that well, seemed, I, I like first, I like primary sources for things, but of course. And I, I mean, I read a little bit of, of Marx's writings, this early texts is, is mm -hmm. like critique of Hegel's philosophy of right is actually very interesting reading. Um, but I was like, is he really capturing like the spirit of Marxists correctly? I spent about six months listening to a Marxist podcast that I found um, called Chapo Trap House. Actually, very funny, very, very clever, uh, enjoyable podcast to listen to. Uh, but he was right. Um, they are. <laughs> he, he was not mischaracterizing them. Okay. Um, he he focuses on the bad things for 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 sure. Um but it, he's not mischaracterizing it, at least in, in my opinion. Well, I, I I don't think he's mischaracterizing like woke and all those movements at all. I mean, I have yeah. some background and understand reading a good bit of queer theory and right. uh, also uh, feminist theory and all that stuff. And that, yes, that's exactly what they're doing. And, like his characterization of that stuff is on point. I just mean it, his, the way he's using oh, Gnostic. Gnostic. Like whether well, I'd have to, like I feel like I'd have to go back to a bunch of primary texts to be like, like is that is that really it? But like I'm willing to accept that as as a baseline assumption right now because I'm not gonna. That uh, the thing about Gnosticism is there's so much. I have an aesthetic kind of, uh, whenever like you get anywhere close to the Bible, and so yeah. like I, I just just like so I'm not gonna do it. But fair. Uh, I I I went back and read over the Gospel of Thomas a couple right. of times, and there's the apocryphal Gospel of John, which is just like. Like if Revelation is like New Testament stuff on mushrooms, this is like apocryphal Gospel of John is like uh, that on ayahuasca or like salvia. It's in absolutely nuts. But the Gospel of Thomas is is like the other Gospels in about two thirds of the time. A lot of it's just repetition of other things. But some of the lines are noticeably different. 
like here's there's this uh, if i could read just a couple of them um here's one where the disciples said to jesus tell us how our end will be jesus said have you discovered then the beginning that you look for the end for where the beginning is there will the end be blessed is he who will take his place in the beginning he will know the end and will not experience death that's not like the other stuff mm -mm. you know that's not no. like the, and then and then there's just some weird shit that makes no sense um it, this this is not my favorite verse but it's up there because every scholar who talks about this has to mention this and has to say no one knows what the fuck he's talking about um so jesus says blessed is the lion which becomes man when consumed by man and cursed is the man whom the lion consumes and the lion becomes man just you know this this is what i was thinking earlier that i lost is that i was just spacing out and kind of remembering um do you remember cody from Volgang? yes yeah he had a lot of tattoos like on his face and stuff yeah uh yeah, yeah. he started he had that vulnerable movement uh, that was kind of his thing but uh in the party yurt when we still had a yurt he uh gave the most amazing piece of drunken performance art i've ever experienced <laughs> and he created an entire it was an entire theater piece that he just like just went on a tangent and wouldn't let go to the point where he basically gave this charles manson-esque speech aligning everyone against the man in the chair and he was he literally picked one guy uh who was in the chair and he's like don't you think that it's all time that it's time that we all stood up against the man in the chair <laughs> haven't you had enough of what the man in the chair does you see all the all this around us all this <laughs> all these lies this the man was he had everybody in that tent ready to like take down the man in the chair this poor guy mike <laughs> was like sitting there and i think that was the night when clinton hit him with a chair but um, <laughs> like, like he, but it was the most Manson-esque thing. He's like, he's like, you know, and I know about the man in the chair, and like it was just this ongoing thing that was totally free form. And but that's really what this, a lot of this is. Like when you're reading that stuff in the Gospel of Thomas, is like, you can become a lion, or are you the lion, or the, the lion inside you? And you're, you know, like all yeah. this kind of upside down, inside out. Is it left or it's right? It's it's confused. It's intentionally confusing language. And it's a whole bunch yeah. of intentionally contradictory things that you use to break people down. Yeah. And, and, and be like, Hey, anything's true. Maybe what I say is true. Like, yeah. and, and you just get kind of crazy with it. And uh, it, I mean, it's, if you've ever listened to Manson speak, that's the way Charles Manson talks. So and, I have, I have two scandalous allegations I want to make. The first is that a guy I really like uh, Scott Adams who's one of the big proponents of simulation theory up there with like elon musk uh but musk is a technologist like it's like oh yeah he's interested in ai and stuff but uh everyone knows scott adams from dilbert but uh the people who uh don't follow him online probably don't know as much that he's also a trained hypnotist and so what hypnosis is it's not just persuasion it's persuasion by first getting people into a frame of um like higher receptivity right you get them into a state where they're able to receive you and, and that's how it works and i wonder like 
is his pushing simulation theory because he really believes it? Or is it because the more people he can get to believe in simulation theory, the more susceptible they will be to believe other things because everything in this world is an illusion. So they'll believe, so anything could be true. Right. Um, and then the other, the other scandalous allegation I want to make uh, is a, in terms of magic and this kind of language is um, someone who I, I'm beginning to think might be trying to use magic is James Lindsay. In a number of recent talks, he's talked about the importance of reconciling reason and faith, reason and faith against mysticism. He says, mysticism is the problem here. It's always been the problem. And there's room for faith and reason to work together. Faith requires reason and reason requires faith because reason without faith is the dragon basically of negation. And I, I, I don't necessarily disagree that reason by itself is insufficient, but what exactly is the difference between faith and mysticism? You got me. I, I was kind of my first result as that started coming out of your mouth. I was like, tomato, tomato. Yeah. Uh, you know, like I believe something that is, is unprovable and because a whole bunch of other people told me to believe it, is not right. is what's the difference yeah. i think mysticism just means like there's uh more crystals and incense uh, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's just weirder and more esoteric you know but uh yeah um again, there's well, that word again but uh, i mean like there, there's this idea of gnosis which is, as it's being used is this revealed truth but it's being passed on through this tradition and through these books when you read a gnostic text you are not gaining gnosis in the sense that is meant on the Oracle of Delphi and uh, the Oracle to Apollo and Delphi. It's not that knowledge by experience. It is, you read a fucking book, <laughs> you know, <laughs> those are different. Um, which is maybe, maybe the supreme irony, but, um, I like, and I don't want to push back against James Lindsay too much on that because frankly, I think it's a good cause, mm -hmm. but it's, it's something perhaps worth noting in terms of recognizing these things. And, and one of the things that James Lindsay says is when you get down to it, so much of what these Marxists do is just puns. It's literally just puns mm -hmm. and using, or, or as, as philosophers would say equivocation, but like uh, when the, when you use uh, equivocation in Greek terms, like, you know, gnosis or episteme or, or German terms, um, you know, it flies under the radar for most people who don't speak Greek or German or don't study the classics. And right. so they can be bamboozled into thinking that, uh, uh, you know, uh, oh, uh, dialectic meant a back and forth across history or rather uh, with different forces rather than, no, it's literally just argument. Um, so, like, uh, there is a... I mean, we've talked a little bit about Socrates and about there's this instinct to kind of to see all this and to reject intellectuals and to reject intellectual stuff mm -hmm. and be like, oh, only only dishonesty and, and tomfoolery comes from from that world. But I think a lot of otherwise well-meaning people get taken in by this stuff um, without some. uh, uh education isn't the right word some familiarity with these techniques well i believe in the x speak uh 
formerly Twitter speak, uh, they would be referred to as mid. Uh, the, the basically like the people who are trying to sound smart, but aren't really that smart. Like they haven't done all the research, whatever, but they, they've, they, they've basically done, oh, they've done AI. They've basically taken the, the learning language model and they got how to replicate the language, uh, which is what I learned how to do in art school is a basically like, if you use this language or this language, I mean, basically, as soon as you, you say dialectic, like Marxists are like, cool, you know, like, you know, yeah. it, 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 there's a handful of, there's a vocabulary that if you can deploy that vocabulary in the pr appropriate way that sounds yeah. right, then, you know, you, you think you sound smart uh, and you think you sound like you're, you're in the in crowd now. And there's a lot of those people. And, and that's a lot of, uh, I mean, a lot of uh, feminist writers and a lot of like just, writers in general not that not the yeah. top ones but the people who you know went to school for gender studies and whatever they're, they're just learning how to deploy the language in, in a way that like gets them the the grade and then gets them a job in diversity inclusion yeah you know? maybe my favorite essay in of all time is uh george orwell's essay on the politics of the english language mm -hmm. um where he makes fun of those people from his day um there's a particular guy he made fun of um, called Harold Lasky, who is the model for one of the villains in the Nine Rams novel. But he was basically the Judith Butler of his day. And his writing was the Judith Butler writing of his day. Um, and he was one of the characters that Orwell mocked for, like, when you actually think visually about what these guys are writing. Because these people who just let the sentences write themselves they just copy the language their metaphors become ridiculous they're like there's one line of like the jackbooted octopus of fascism has swung its songs swan song or something and you, like if you pause to read that sentence slowly and you're forced to imagine an octopus singing a swan song you're like who the fuck wrote this this is nonsensical give you that I, exactly <laughs> yeah Exactly. And and this is the problem with just the repetition of language that um, that politics can get you into and this kind of Gnostic religious language of the, oh, the pleroma. Oh, it's not wisdom. It's Sophia, which is different. Um, yeah. It's, it's and then like, it makes you sound cool when you're in the in crowd and you're. Yeah. Yeah. It's so like the, the Nag Hammadi. It's like the, the Nag Hammadi is, is not a book. It, it, you mean like the Gospel of Thomas and these like three, other, like 12 other texts. Um, it, it, the the language can lead you in a direction of its own, and what I love about uh, George Orwell's essay is that it it it's not just pointing out and and mocking the language of these people, but he also gives a kind of direction out of that. Mm -hmm. Um, and I mean we we've talked a little bit for positively and negatively about uh, Stephen Pinker. But one of Stephen Pinker's other excellent books is The Sense of Style, which is about how to write well and basically writing simply and clearly and directly. And um, so much of the Gnostic stuff, as I as I tried to say in, in my little Instagram post about how they always have to kind of hide in this murky in, in the dark and only let little bits out as you get more um, open to it. Um, good writing is direct it isn't this esoteric stuff and and people within technical fields can fall into obscure writing by accident it's very mm -hmm. clear to other people who are within the field but 
if they're writing to a late audience uh, i'm i'm not the best at this uh and <laughs> some of my writing um need to work on that uh but it's not because i'm trying to obscure things and and it is a shortcoming that i need to you know get better at and uh, i think the gnostic tendency is to think oh no the more the more um vague sounding means the more profound and the more like that's precisely greek is 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 like spiritually higher in some capacity it's like no it's not because it's yeah, not yeah. about the language well that, that's kind of my thing all the time i'm like well can you say that let's say in simple language and break it down because there are so many people that um they, they it has to be complicated and contradictory or they can't think that it's interesting or yeah. they can't think that it's true or they can't connect with it uh i i, I think half that's that's half the reason that a certain kind of guy is drawn into some of the, especially things like orthodoxy or like uh, um forms of christianity that whereas like they can dig so deep into it and it, it'll never yeah. make sense and, you know, and but they can spend hours like going into the contradictions of things and, and trying to work them out. You know who the best ASMR voices on YouTube and the gateway drug to half of this is Alan Watts. Hmm. Um, I could listen to him for hours. He's very pleasant to listen to. Uh -huh. I don't know if any of it means anything, um, but <laughs> I'm sure some of it does. I I'm tried to get it. I tried to read a book by him oh. and it was a little too Buddhist and it annoyed me. And I was like, Ugh. no, I, like, I ordered it. I was like, this sounds cool. And I was like, this is irritating. You, you can't read him. You have to listen to him. Listen okay. to five minutes of him talk. Like he's leading you into the thing. It's, 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 it's yeah. the feeling of spirituality without like learning anything. <laughs> um, very pleasant. Uh, very, very, I do recommend just don't, just don't, make the mistake of thinking you're learning something um, well you know I was, I was going to say that one of the things that an unintentional parody of a lot of these occult worlds and these gnostic worlds and this language that we're talking about the language of esoteric forms and initiation um hp lovecraft did a fantastic parody without trying <laughs> Uh, cause, because he was just writing fiction and thought it, he probably thought it was as cool as everybody else. But the whole idea of writing a Necronomicon, that there's a secret book that no one, if, if you find it, it's going to change everything. And it has all the secrets of the elder things of a reality that exists beyond this reality. And that, that uh, and the death cult of the Cthulhu worshipers is basically the whole thing that Cthulhu is going to come back. And we want him to come back and kill everybody and eat us last. You know, and, and that's that's the way I feel about the AI accelerationists and uh, like uh, a lot of a lot of the communists and all that. Uh, I think that they it's it's a death cult, and they just think they're going to get eaten last. And 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 but the language, you know, H.P. Lovecraft did such a good job of like what would lure people into the like that, like the fact that there are actually people who pretend to believe that that's real in the world because i used to go in portland uh me and my buddy rex uh actually used to go to the hp lovecraft film festival that they had for many years in portland and their whole there's a whole world built about around his genre and right. and, and like people make short films people make feature films um i knew a guy who made a pretty good one uh and, and uh it, like it's it's a and there are people who have statues of cthulhu in their house and like all this stuff becomes like this other world and it's 
the, you can actually buy the Necronomicon. People have written the Necronomicon <laughs> and put it online. Um, and it, but it just shows like how attractive that kind of like there's a secret that knowledge. chthonic. Yeah, I just love the word chthonic. Right. C t h o n i. Oh yeah. Ooh. Yeah, it sounds Ooh. cool just because just, just the word. Just the word. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but taking taking the 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 satires and the spoofs in a in a slightly different direction. There's a book I haven't read this one. I've been meaning to. Uh, but which has been recommended by another guy I, I like a number of times. It's called The Name of the Rose by Umberto Eco. Um, it was his yeah, first it was movie novel. With Sean Connery. Uh, yes, I haven't seen the movie either, but supposedly it's it's like a spoof of a Dan Brown before Dan Brown was even a thing. And like the characters are apparently like it's very, very smart. They're like making joke puns in latin they're like very but they, they they try to create a dan brown style like secret society conspiracy as a joke and write stories about it but then like halfway through they realize like wait the conspiracy is real and they're like but how could it be real it was a joke and they like accidentally spoof a conspiracy into real life or, or something to that uh something yeah. to that effect uh, but it's it's apparently quite a quite a funny novel, uh, making fun of this tendency, and um, I mean it's, you know, as Bishop Barron has said, it, it, like the Gnostic heresy, which is the Gnostic tendency, has been with us for two thousand years longer. It predates Christianity. It probably goes back to Egypt before even Plato, mm -hmm. and uh, like if Roy Rappaport is to believe be believed. And it tends to uh, increase with technology of a global scale and increasing, you know, connection with our lives. We're probably going to see more of it in the future. So how related is it to autism? <laughs> that is a good question, because I feel right? like it can go either way. The world, you know, like the world's not yeah. real. I'm just so, like, you know, like it's. Or, or autists could go the St. Irenaeus route and be like, uh, this is uh, not real. Uh, and it's not real because of this one detail. It's not real. It's not not real because like it's the wrong spirit. It's like, no, no, no. They get this one thing wrong. So it's all wrong. And then they devote their life to say my, one of my favorite arguments by St. Irenaeus, um, which I learned uh, two days ago is in his refutation of the Gnostics. He said, um, the, the gospel of Thomas is absolutely not true because there can only be four gospels. There could only ever be four gospels because there are only four winds. And the Holy Spirit being like the wind could only be expressed in four books, not five. So it's, it's just, it's just the four. I feel like that's like <laughs> religious writing to me. That's, what, that's the way it all sounds. <laughs> <laughs> it's all how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. He did have some good stuff in there too, but that that, that one stuck out as as particularly particularly fun. Yeah, no, clearly that must be. <laughs> but right. cool, cool. Well, that, this is basically what I wanted to get into as far as this goes. I mean, we've gone a little over what we normally do. It's not like we have a limit, but yeah. uh, uh, there. You know, I just wanted to kind of address some of these things because the <laughs> the allure of the language. And uh, the contradictions, I think, between this, what we're trying to go for with uh, solar mm -hmm. idealism and some of these occult traditions. 
which again, cult in Gnostic aren't the same thing, but they're like I said, the Venn diagram is pretty. You know, like yeah. it, it, there's a big Venn diagram crossover between occult and Gnosticism and, well, and, and Hermeticism, which we didn't really talk about. Yeah, but, uh, but as it pertains to solar idealism in the sun, yeah, um, you know, this what is the sun if not the illuminator? It, it shines down and makes things clear for us. Yeah. All of the the Gnosticism, like the occult in general, and Gnosticism specifically, is all about you know digging through and finding what's secret, what's hidden in the muck, what's hidden in the in the shadows, and in, in the sense of I mean, you don't even need to read Nietzsche. You could read Yukio Mishima and, and Sun and Steel and his approach to um, we were just talking about not like Gnostics and words and language like Yukio Mishima's approach to language and the way that words eventually eat themselves like white ants like that. It felt like he was from a from an Asian perspective, sort of finding the Gnostic spirit in the writers of his day, completely apart from the sort of Alexandrian um, tradition over on our side of the, you know, Pacific. Mm. So like the, the, what is solar is not like, if it has any character in style, I feel like it's best embodied by like those native American orators who we have texts from who, you know, whether it was for, uh, you know, translation reasons or just their natural style, had this very direct manner of speaking that Socrates claimed to try to do, but kind of couldn't manage in spite of himself, um, <laughs> you know, but, but which, you, you know, you hear like Chief Seelf or, or some of these other Sioux chief and Comanche chiefs really do speak directly. Here's what we see. Here's what you said. Here's what we say. Here's how it is. And the, and what Orwell sort of um, idealized and what Steven Pinker idealized is in direct, clear language. As soon as you try to express these Gnostic ideas clearly without attachment to these magical words, it loses all of its magic. And I think that the, the idea of sunlight as a disinfectant could be distilled into uh, clarity and language as a disinfectant from um, being mystified. Yeah. Well, there's there's there is a crossover, though, because uh, in, there's just a different fantasy, I think. And, the idea of like learning the secret things under the mountain, going going into the cavern and learning the scenes from the secret book. Man, I had this book for when I was a kid, had a picture and uh, it was uh, like time life books. It was one on the devil or something like that. And it had this picture of these guys. There was a secret place that you learned to go actually learn stuff from the devil under the mountain. It's some like ancient lore. And I thought that was the coolest thing when I was <laughs> like, oh, there's a place where you can go and learn the secret lore. And that's really what all the aesthetically, that's what all of this is. And, and then uh, the, the solar thing, I mean, myth is also about getting caught up in language a little bit uh, uh, very know, much heroic language and and uh, it's just what kind of language and what is the use that, yeah as with all things what what end are we trying to go to 
And that's that's like I said, that's why I'm not okay with Buddhism generally, is because I I don't like the end. Like I see the end. I don't want to be initiated because I already know what the end is. Like that's been made clear. And right. so that's that's with so many of these things, like initiated into what and why and for who. And that's that's there's so many people, and but people love the idea of initiation because they are like the idea of ritual. What what if what if initiation was called something different? What if what would would people still be as enamored with initiation if it was if they had to call it just a state starting. change? Yeah, <laughs> a ritual state change. Yeah, that's, that's actually. I mean, technically, I guess that's probably what it is. Uh, but uh, we're just changing. Yeah, yeah, or, or, yeah. Or ritual change in status, <laughs> uh, you know, or identity. Um, yeah. that's, that's it would a lose lot. a little bit of its allure, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, because then it's just then it's just words describing exactly what it is. But uh, you know, like we do want that. We want the romance of language. I mean, that's yeah. that's what makes poetry good. Well, you know, well, we yeah, I mean, we we use language and, and we can be motivated by language. Mm -hmm. But when we're evaluating what is true, yeah, and when we're trying to like, I I I think there's a tremendous difference between you know, describing an epic battle scene that is motivating us with the full power of our, you know, linguistic capabilities to, to really bring it to life and to put you there in that moment and be like, this is pre-football game motivation for your, for your like linebackers. It's like hold the line or whatever. Um, like that's, that is very different <laughs> than using the power of language as a kind of as evidence that something is true or, or, or letting your, your feelings carry you to that conclusion. And this is one of the things I, before the Gnostic post, I got in trouble for the Islam post. Many of the Muslims I've seen who were converted to Islam mm -hmm. did so after they learned Arabic and then read the Quran in Arabic and they found the writing is too perfect. It is so good in Arabic. It, it, there's a sense that it had to be divine. And I mean, that's kind of how I feel about Homer, to be totally honest. Uh, I'm, I don't even speak Greek. Just the, just the feeling of the language, um, e even in its translated form, and that's the content. Um, now, I don't, I don't take that to be evidence that it really was channeled from the muses. Or, or anything like that. I I do think it came from a, a person or a couple people or a tradition culminating in a person who wrote things down, most likely. But um, but there's a sense there. There's a sense, and if you take that as like, oh yeah, this is artistically powerful, and I love that. That's very different than saying, and therefore it's true or some path to truth. Right. Right. No, I think, and that's an important distinction. I mean, uh, that's. I'll just slide this comment in, even though it's not relevant. But uh, we uh, the other day I put on Twitter because I was thinking about it. And I'm like, trying to learn about Greek religion is like trying to learn about Christianity by reading Milton and Dante. Because That's, there's no sacred yeah. text. You know, like there's that, but it, they're plays. You know, like they're plays or, po or epic poets or whatever. And... It just struck me as how much of Greek literature, especially when I was traveling in Greece and reading some of the plaques about things and whatever, um, how much of the Greek literature was written for contests? 
in which there a lot, a lot of, of the, a lot of the information that we have about the gods is some guy writing the god as a character in the way that you know in milton would re write it makes satan a character or you know like uh in the way that uh it's they're writing characters for their god and but we're taking that as like this is exactly what all of them believed and that's not true <laughs> or there's no, no way to prove that because there's no holy book there's just literature and and that's it's a really interesting thing. And I just thought that was that really struck me. I'd never thought about that before. But like it's it's a very striking difference between learning about those religions and learning about um, you know like learning about Christianity or something like that or Islam or whatever. It's something that has these are the books. This that this is what they believed. Yeah, but, you know, very different. And we we can pick up some of the details about their their religious practice from 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 the things that are described in a mundane manner. Yeah, like that they, they very repetitiously almost casually describe oh yeah then we had to go we did a sacrifice and so you know such and such person did the sacrifice and he cut yeah. this and this way to poseidon or whoever and you're like okay we're not spending two pages of, of lines describing an epic detail all of that in the way that we would uh describing achilles arming himself or right. something that's truly stylized so that probably describes in some general fashion a behavior yeah. but um what it does look like is that like these were religions of of convention and mm -hmm. piety was are you following custom are you paying your due respect not just to the gods and their statues and stuff but also like to your parents and to like your neighbor and to um to guests you know hospitality was a was a pious duty mm -hmm. but so much of it was custom observing the holidays putting up your Christmas lights, shooting off the fireworks, doing all the, like the customs correctly. And um, like truth seemed to have come to the table later. Um, yeah. Or just written through I mean, cause we had the Vedic stuff where they actually wrote stuff down, you know, but uh, it, right. it's, so it's, it's just, yeah. it's just an interesting, I think, distinction. And I think it helps people maybe understand a little bit better what they're dealing with versus you know because everybody wants someone asked me the other day like uh if i want to learn more about this i'm reading the iliad right now if i want to learn more about greek religion what do i where do i go and i'm like well we could we could make some suggestions but know this know. <laughs> <laughs> know this and the same is true obviously of the, uh, the yeah. norse stuff and and uh all the germanic material that it's it's in the vedic stuff uh you know there's there's a lot of extrapolation and like I think they probably did this, you know, like that's, there's a lot of that in history, but, no. but anyway, that it gets us, I think far enough away from our topic that we should probably wrap it up. But yeah, uh, but, uh, but yeah, I, I think it's good. I just, I hope uh, some of our readers and people who are interested in solar idealism, maybe understand the difference, some of the objections, you know, cause when I see, when I see the occult symbolism and, and uh, you know, Gnosticism and stuff like that, I'm, I'm, all, I'm already kind of like, ah, no, no. And, and, uh, but it's hard to explain why. So I hope we yeah. explained why a little well, bit better. Well, and it's also, I think, I don't think it's bad for guys to go through that no. for some time. It's like, I think, I, I think, there's a lot of shit. yeah, <laughs> I, think, I think it's, it's very easy for people to look around at this. I'm, I'm plagiarizing from Curtis Yarvin here, um, at the, the, the lane culture 
um, that they're they're fed in schools, the sort of the basic stories, mm -hmm. and especially if they're a little precocious, to be like, well, this is obviously bullshit, right. and it's lame bullshit, and to say, what's the opposite of that, and that's and and that's where if you're lucky, you end up in Nordic black metal. If you're unlucky, you end up in worse places. Um, yeah. There are all kinds of of, of like anti-mainstream rabbit holes you can go down and i think it, it's it, it's almost indicative and symptomatic of a certain level of intelligence and honesty and courage to have gone down those absolutely but but it's also important at some point before you're 30 ideally um to recognize that the opposite of a falsehood is not therefore the truth Right. And that the opposite of one bad thing can be a different bad thing or even a worse thing. So yeah. like there is something better than the mainstream that isn't just an impulsive reactive oppositionalism to the mainstream, which yeah. I think Gnosticism kind of feels that way. It's like mm -hmm. God, God exists, but he's evil. It's like that. that that's a little, <laughs> I don't think you're getting closer to the truth by rejecting the, the in, in rejecting that initial lie, you know? Yeah. And the, and the oppositionalism just for the sake of oppositionalism. And, you know, all of us, I think if you have maybe a little, if you're a little spicy, just generally as a person, and I certainly am, uh, if you tell me I'm not allowed to do something, I, I definitely want to do it. <laughs> uh, so, so uh, yeah. um, and, and so we, we understand that obviously and we're, we're, understand that the people were attracted to what we're talking about but you know like you said the opposite direction isn't necessarily the correct direction and we're trying to reason out like well okay well what what is what direction? is a good direction yeah yeah what is a good direction if we, if we didn't if if we were if we were the first man <laughs> and we wanted to figure out what the what the first direction was what would we choose you know yeah, if we well, had let's say what's a non-reactive direction right exactly which sometimes they'll be closer to one side, sometimes they'll close to the other side, but uh, it, it just depends where, where it is. So, but anyway, this is an awesome conversation. I think this is one of our better uh, podcasts. So, uh, I'm glad and, you think so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. I think it was good. Um, and and so, uh, everybody, thanks, thanks for listening, and uh, stay solid. Pater is the cultural arm of the Order of Fire. For more visit ph2t3r.com.